So the big question is this. How are real estate investors who don't have a ton of free time, don't have access to off-market deals, and didn't start life on third base? How do we grow a real estate business conservatively to support our families, finally leave the corporate rat race, and build a legacy? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Ed Matthews, and this is Real Estate Underground. This is the Real Estate Underground podcast show number 55. Hey, everybody. Ed Matthews here with the Real Estate Underground podcast. I am really excited today. Uh, Today, we're meeting with Marco Santarelli of Narada Real Estate Investments and Narada Capital. Um, Marco, welcome to the show, and thank you for your time today, sir. Ed, it's an honor to be on your show. Thanks for the invite, and I'm looking forward to this interview. The honor is mine. I appreciate it. Um, so, so for those of us out there who haven't met you or haven't seen you on Facebook or stalked you like I did, uh, <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about your company and, and what you do for a living? That's always a hard question to answer as far as what I do for a living. I used to right. say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a real estate investor. And then uh, sometimes I'd say I, you know, run a small business. But the, the reality is, is I'm a serial entrepreneur and investor and something I aspire to do when I was a, a young age. So what do I do? I, I, the short answer, the one sentence answer is I help people create wealth and passive income. That's really the short answer. An outstanding answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to expand on that just for five seconds, um, it really, it, for 19 years, it's been through investment real estate. You know, you and I both loved real estate. We, you know, it, it's truly a great wealth creator. Um, but it, as the years evolved, uh, and and as as the years went by, I started you know venturing into other business uh, ventures and uh, expanding you know our offering. So it's it's still real estate, but it's also promissory notes and and whatnot. Um, I try and keep it very tight. Um, but at the end of the day, what I like to do is educate people on how to create wealth, how to preserve it. Um, how to create passive income, financial freedom. It's something I've always been passionate about since I was a teenager. And so now, you know, I've reached a certain level of success and now I just want to pass that on. Right, right on. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you and I come at, you know, I think we're we're kind of reading the same book, but we're on different chapters, right? Um, you, you know, where, where, where we invest primarily in multifamily, you know, six units and above, you know, your focus has been, and correct me if I'm wrong, one to four unit residential. And I'll obviously mentioned promissory notes as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I never really wanted to venture out beyond four units uh, for several different reasons. Not that I don't like multi-units. I think they're fantastic. And for your audience listening to this, you know, if they want a really passive real estate investment, syndications are a great way to get involved in that. Um, but I just really enjoy the residential space because that's where I cut my teeth at an early age. Um, I understand it. It's easy to understand. It's easy to swallow. It's easy to deal with. Um, I can make an argument that you get a slightly better tenant. Um, that's an anecdotal, um, you know, uh, opinion, uh, just because you have that personal space, especially when you're dealing with single families or to some degree duplexes, Sure. but also one to four units for me, um, is attractive because I have that 30 year fixed rate conventional financing that I can get for it that you really can't do with commercial property. You know, you've got a 25 year amortization. You might have a three to five year term that you have to, you know, refinance or recast every so often. So I just like that predictability of, of locking into really what is the most aggressive and cheapest form of financing. Um, 
anyway, you know, each to their own. I mean, there's, it's not that one is better than the other. It's, it's, you know, what, what resonates with you? Where do you want to be? Yeah. But when it comes to the debt, you know, I'm the first one to admit that you probably have a little less stress than I do on a three to five year basis. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've heard from multiple people and, and I'm one of them, right? I mean, the first building I ever bought was a four unit. And uh, the, you know, the fact is, is that that actually may be as close to a perfect investment as possible, right? Um, you know, you can lose one or two tenants in a, in a four family and still cash flow, which is a beautiful thing. And uh, it's, it's what got me hooked on, uh, on uh, real estate in that, wow, actually I can get, you know, even if I had to live in one of the units, um, uh, it would still, you know, cash flow and actually then pay my mortgage uh, down over over time. So it's it's probably about as close to a perfect investment as you possibly can get, right? Yeah, and for a lot of investors, actually, that's a great way to get started because they can what is referred to as house hack. You know, you yep. could yep. buy a duplex or a fourplex, live in one unit, rent the others out, and it and it basically covers or at least full, you know, uh, supplements to a large degree sure. your 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 PITI your carry costs, yep. and that's a great way to get started. And then after two years, you know, you've got the benefit of being able to move up and uh, take that those capital gains tax-free and, and, and leverage that into more property. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's a good way to get started. Indeed it is. And, you know, the good, the good news is that uh, the market's starting to correct. And actually one of the things I want to talk about is, is what you see coming. Uh, you know, you're on the West coast in uh, uh, it's um, California, California. Thank you. Uh, I was searching for the city and I, I blanked on it, but um, yeah. the, the uh, but the fact is, is that, uh, you know, here on the East coast, we're, we're seeing a, you know, fairly healthy correction right now, and it may get past healthy and into a little scary um, over the next, uh, you know, six to 18 months. Yeah, I I mean, you have to look at the country as uh, uh, a lot of local markets. Yeah, you have to look at the country as basically a massive blob of local markets and even right. to, to a large degree sub markets right. so you know you i'm always cautious when i talk about averages because right. you know e- even with the k shiller index which is the you know the top 10 and top 20 markets yep. you know it's 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 just a barometer but it doesn't necessarily represent exactly what's going on in every single local market and sub market because right. you could literally have a market that's doing well relative to the other markets. And then you can break that down into some markets and see some markets actually appreciating while others are depreciating. But overall, the trend has been across the country that most metropolitan areas have been correcting. The expectation is that markets are going to correct about 20% on average. Again, I, you know, I, I say that loosely in air quotes, um, cause some markets are going to, are going to have very mild adjustments over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, whereas other markets are going to correct pretty heavily, especially those that appreciated very, very quickly in a short, relatively short period of time in 2020 and 2021, we saw on average about 20% appreciation rates in a lot of the, you know, the, the primary and, and secondary markets, uh, especially in the South and Southeast. Um, now these markets are, are slowly correcting. We've seen many markets already correct about 20%. Yep. Uh, but, uh, whether that's a 10% or 20% correction, it does, um, help towards affordability, especially with mortgage rates, mortgage rates having been going up, uh, provides opportunities for investors that are looking to come in. Um, but you know, my expectation for 2023, and you know, I don't have a magical crystal ball, but I, I I expect most markets to continue to have corrections 
subtle, but, but, but corrections nonetheless. And that will taper out for a period of time as, as markets start to normalize and we see where interest rates are going. Cause a lot of people have actually gone, uh, you know, to the sidelines to see what happens um, before jumping into buying or moving up or, um, or investing in property. I mean, we're seeing it with the Norada real estate side, you know, we, we're still getting, you know, a lot of investors coming forward uh, wanting to invest in one to four unit properties in different markets. Uh, but compared to the previous two years, it's, it's, it's measurably less. Yeah. Um, but the correction will continue. Um, although I expect it over the next six to 12 months to subside. Um, and, you know, I've got some internal tools, which are very interesting that actually show me uh, what markets are doing on an appreciation perspective, inflation adjusted appreciation perspective, yep. um, and whether they're in a wealth phase or not, and whether they're appreciating or depreciating and where the momentum is. So I can actually make predictions for six to 12 months into the future as what that market might do. Uh, now, just as kind of a side note, and maybe just kind of a, a very loose plug, uh, I am working with a development team to turn this into a public tool where wow, people nice. can go and use it to see any market literally down to the zip code um, and see what's happening in every single micro block around the country in terms of price, uh, price appreciation and momentum. Um, wow. But that's a long answer to your question. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're, we're seeing some corrections going on. The thing is you can't have 20% price appreciation, you know, across the country on average right. uh, for two years. Number one, that's, that's well above, the long-term historic average. And number two, it's highly unsustainable. I mean, incomes don't go up 20% per year. I mean, you're lucky if incomes go up four to 6% per year. Um, and even if they did, you know, you, you know, you're going to lose that affordability pretty quick. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I keep seeing all these articles and talking anecdotally to, to investors and, and, you know, families that have bought, in this run-up, you know, the post mid-COVID to post-COVID run-up of real estate, a lot of people out there who regret buying what they bought, right? And but the, but the thing is, is that you know, there's there's kind of two levers there. There is the the purchase price, and then there are the terms you got, right? And so you know, a, if I overpaid by twenty percent, but I have a two and a half percent mortgage rate, it's probably a little bit easier to to uh, to swallow than you know having a overpaid and caught that, that run up on the mortgage side, uh, you know, and I'm paying a, you know, in the fives or, or worse still in the sixes plus. Right. Yeah. So and even if you call that, even if you think that's a mistake, real estate, fortunately, historically has proven to be a very forgiving asset class. It moves and changes very slowly, but even if you overpay time will catch up to that, that premium that you pay. Time is definitely our friend, especially for cash flow investors, right? So, um, so, so let's talk about let's talk about your business. So, when you're, you know, you're you're very active in uh, Alabama and uh, Maryland, Baltimore, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. um, and and other markets. You know, I'm curious about what you look at. You know, your your website is a wealth of information in terms of what you see in the market, and you know, and and it's pretty clear kind of the levers that you look at. Uh, to uh, to decide if it's you know if it's a market that you want to get involved with, but um, for the benefit of our listeners, you know what are some of the attributes of a market that uh, you look at to help decide you know yes it's it's this is a good place to invest money. Uh, so so 
Norada Real Estate Investments is focused on about 25 markets, and they're predominantly on the eastern half of the U.S., and there's reasons for that. It's because just the numbers make sense there. Most of the markets on the western half of the U.S. just don't make sense. Prices are so high. Rents are not high enough to give you a, a high enough rent-to-price ratio, and so they just don't cash flow. Uh, you know, a lot of times at best, they just break even. So we focus on the Eastern half. It's, it's basically the flyover country, Midwest, mm -hmm. parts of the Northeast, uh, a lot of places in the Southeast and to some degree, the South, which would be, you know, the Texas markets and whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, Alabama, Mississippi. Yep. Um, uh, what, what there's two things that I look at when I look at markets, there's, there's the fundamentals and then there's the technicals. The fundamentals are two very, very important things, but they're they're not necessarily the be all end all. And one is is jobs and job growth. If you're if you're looking at a market that has a strong job base, diversified job base, meaning that there are a lot of sectors or or um, industries within that economy, it provides uh, stability and mostly stability, but potential long term growth. So you want to see jobs and job growth. If you see job growth, that means that people are going to be moving in, which is increasing demand. And that demand for real estate, you know, keeps prices sustained or in many cases um, uh, causes appreciation, price appreciation. So you want to see jobs and job growth. That 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 to me is kind of like the most fundamental piece of what you need. Tied to that, they go hand in hand, is population growth. Often, but not always, job growth in a particular market leads to population growth because people are moving in from other areas. And so those two things going hand in hand provide, um, you know, it's economics 101, supply and demand, provide, you know, that stability um, or growth in the on the price side of, of things. Um, if there is a lack of supply and you have strong demand, now you've got a hyper growth market. And that's what we've been seeing in, in many of the Florida markets. There's not enough housing, but a lot of people are moving, 100,000 people you know, per year moving to, 100, to, to Florida. Now that's creating a bit of a problem because now you don't have um, the housing to, to, to provide these people. So those are the fundamental things is our jobs and job growth and population growth. Those are the fundamental pieces of it. But there are times when you have both of those factors going on in a market, but you're not seeing price appreciation for various reasons. One is, you know, obviously what I just mentioned, a, an oversupply of housing. So that hasn't been absorbed yet in order to affect, you know, prices, uh, uh, price increases or rent increases. Right. So, so the next thing you need to look at, which actually segues back into the tool I was telling you about that we use internally uh, that I'm looking to turn into a a SaaS product of some kind um, uh, in the next couple of months. And that is, you know, the, the technical aspect of it. Now, so if you think of stock, the stock market and stocks, and you look at a stock chart and you can see whether prices are going up or going down and you can, you know, follow the trend and you can put some tools on it, like moving averages and whatnot. Uh, those are, those are technicals. Uh, so when you apply technical analysis to a particular market, you can see, if there's momentum and where prices are trending, it gives you a pretty reliable short-term prediction. Uh, as you go further and further out, it becomes harder and harder to predict because you just can't see that far into the future. Right. Um, but there's a fair amount of reliability, you know, when you're measuring in terms of six months, 12 months, and sometimes 24 months down the road. And so those are the two things I like to look at. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it, it sounds complicated. It's not all that complicated. No, I mean, it's it, it, if you break it down, I mean, it, let's unpack it a little bit, right? It's it's do people have work? 
And uh, are those opportunities growing, stable or shrinking, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what does the supply of homes, you, you know, I mean, 2008 was absolutely devastating to the construction industry. And a lot of those general contractors who would have built single family homes all the way up to four families and frankly, even apartment buildings, you know, a lot of them went away. And so there is, you know, I, I see different numbers, but the, you know, the macro number in the U.S. is, you know, last I checked was like 3.8 million housing units behind where we need to be. And it's directly tied to, you know, the 08, 09 crisis, right? Yeah. So, you know, where you look at, where you look at markets and say, you know, and, and we look at similar things, right? I mean, obviously, we want to know that there are jobs. We want to know there's job growth. We want to know that there's diversity, you know, in our world. You know, we focus on uh, employment. You know, no one sector owns more than twenty percent of the employment base. Um, mm -hmm. So we know there's good diversification, and you know, then it comes down to uh, you know market factors like rent or um, uh, you know uh, income, um, you know monthly income, and uh, you know it starts to help us zero in on on where uh, there are healthy, stable, or growing economies, right? And those that's where you put your money. Yeah, and you're right in everything you said. I, I, I would, I would probably even venture to, to, to guess. I mean, based on data that I've looked at, um, and and information from multiple sources, that the uh, housing, how the housing deficit is probably closer to five million, five to five and a half million. Wow. Um, we need a lot of housing, you know, to to keep right. up with both, you know, the uh, organic population growth and the immigration growth. So right now we're we're on a pretty good trend to meet the requirements by 2030. Um, but we're still running about a five, five and a half million uh, million uh, housing unit deficit uh, in, in the country. Now we'll catch up. I mean, builders have been acquiring massive amounts of land, you know, buildable land. And they're they've been building like crazy up until, you know, the mortgage rates um, going up this year, you know, they were they were just building as much as they possibly could, as fast as they possibly could. They've been pumping the brakes this year only because mortgage rates have gone up and they've seen sales slow down. So they're trying to keep, you know, trying to keep um, cash flow moving in the sense that they're providing some forms of incentives to keep buyers interested in coming in and buying their inventory so that they don't have standing inventory. Right. Um, but that'll clear up, you know, next year, like things will start to pick up again. At some point, the, the, the Fed has to take their foot off the brake. They're going to stop pumping the brakes because they're going to crush the U.S. economy if, right. if they continue uh, their quantitative quantitative uh, tightening. Right. So so we'll, we'll see it pick up again. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, from what I'm reading, that we're right on the edge of a soft landing. Right. And so and it's a, it, it's some art and some science in terms of how to, you know, which pedal to hit and uh, how hard to hit it, you know, over the next six to 18 months, uh, Powell has a very difficult job ahead of him. Yeah, it's a tight rope for sure. I mean, yeah. he's definitely walking a tight rope. You know, he's, he's only had, he only has so many levers to play with. Right. Uh, you know, it's probably one. <laughs> so, right. right. You know, and, and, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned that uh, developers have kind of dialed it back in terms of uh, uh, build for sale. Uh, but, you know, build for rent uh, here in the Northeast, for instance, is exploding. Right. I mean, yeah. there are there are apartment buildings and, you know, and and just uh, single family complex, uh, single family neighborhoods built to rent, which uh, I, I interviewed a gentleman down in Tennessee. That's all he does. Right. He's he's buying, you know, farmland as fast as he can get it in, in house. 
and turning around and building single family homes in the you know Nashville, Tennessee area and uh, is absolutely thriving and, you know, can't keep up with demand. And, you know, around here in the Northeast, a lot of multifamily development, a lot of multifamily development. Um, so it's interesting, you know, you see the ebbs and flows of build to sell versus build to rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I see that, uh, you know, that's changing. The other thing that's interesting is, um, you know, you were mentioning about, um, you know, interest rates and, and price pressure and all that, you know, about three months ago, I finally started to see a little bit of capitulation on the seller side, you know, where things were being repriced, uh, things were being taken off the market for a period of time and brought back on um, and, uh, you know, offering price relative to sale price. Uh, you know, there's finally a difference in the number as, and it's it's a negative drop as opposed to a positive uh, increase, right? So, you know, it, the market is definitely, the dynamics of the market are absolutely changing here, 100% right. Yeah. And inventory is starting to increase. I mean, we're, we're starting to see it actually, it actually changed very quickly this year. We saw, we saw a struggle to get inventory, uh, that pendulum shifted. And, uh, now we're seeing a lot of inventory. In fact, we even have builders coming to us right now saying, Hey, you know, we've got, you know, inventory to, to unload or move, you know, can you help us? Yeah. It it, it was very, it was a very, very quick change. Yeah. And is that inventory land to build or is it actual uh, housing units that are already built? Uh, it's residential, it's residential property, you know, wow. mostly single family homes, um, predominantly single family homes, but it's like available inventory. Right. It's like, Hey, we've got this inventory. We, you know, it's, it's slow, slow going. We need to move right. it. Can you help us? Yeah. Can you take this off our balance sheet? for? Yeah. And before, around? before, like, you know, 12 months ago, we were begging to get inventory. Right. <laughs> so yeah. End of summer, early fall is, is where we saw a change here in the East. Yeah. So, in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah, that does thing. Interesting thing of you know for your audience to know is is it's it's very very rare, if not not quite impossible. I don't want to say that it's very rare to find a state of equilibrium in real estate. It's yeah. it, to me, I call it a pendulum. It's swing, it's swinging one way or another. Right. You know, it goes from a, a seller's market to a buyer's market and back the other way, and you know the pace changes, but it's never stagnant. And that's what keeps real estate very interesting. You know, you could, there's always opportunity out there. It's just going to be market specific and you have to just look at, you know, where to invest. And I I always say, look, it's never, never ask me the question, is it a good time to invest? Because my answer will be, it's always a good time to invest in real estate. It's not a question of when it's a question of where, you know, and this is why, you know, I, I always teach people to be market agnostic, never be married to a particular market. Don't feel that you have to invest in your backyard or, you know, within a one hour or two hour radius of where you live. Sure. That, you know, that's just silly. You know, the, the gurus talk about that um, because they feel that you should be hands on and, and involved in your local market. Well, the thing is, is odds are you're probably not managing your own property and you're not going to be swinging a hammer. So if you're, you know, a passive real estate investor, um, look at, look at, look at the country made, you know, as being uh 500 plus markets. Don't look at the market or the, you know, your opportunity being just your local market where you live, because you're going to be missing out on lots of potential opportunities that exist around, around the U S. So be market agnostic, just understand that all real estate is local. You should focus on the markets that are going to put your money to work in the best way possible, the hardest way possible to, to generate the greatest gains in terms of cash flows and gains in terms of appreciation or appreciation potential. And if you, if you have that mindset, then you'll, you'll realize that you're playing in a very, very large pond. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the fact is you should be putting your money where you're going to, you're going to get the best return, right? Always. And, uh, that is almost always not your backyard. 
right? Correct. Uh, Correct. You know, it's cyclical. It'll it'll eventually be your backyard, but not always, right? In fact, most of the time it won't be. So, right. you know, that's where guys like you and me help investors figure that out and uh, and you know deploy their capital with uh, with a little bit of science, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> True. Right. So, so how did you get into real estate? I mean, obviously. Uh, you, you know, did you have a finance background or, you know, what, what drew you to real estate as opposed to, I mean, obviously, you know, somebody with, with your intellect and capabilities, um, you could have been in the stock market, you could have been in oil and gas, you could have done a lot of different things. Right. But why real estate? It's funny because the city I grew up in uh, was heavily and still is heavily based on oil and gas. I mean, that is the, the main driving part of the economy. Uh, I, I hated that, you know, it's just it yeah, had yeah. no interest. I, I just knew it, when I was a teenager, I just knew that I wanted to be financially independent. I, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but I, I basically took it upon myself to study business, entrepreneurship and real estate, like investing, but mostly real estate. Uh, and I was doing that at about the age of 15, 16. Um, and, and nobody pushed me in that direction. It's just, I, I, I looked around and I observed and I realized, okay, I want money. I want lots of it. I want to be financially free. Yeah. What are other people doing? And I realized that they were either entrepreneurs like business owners or, and, or they owned real estate. And so I educated myself. And then when I turned 18, I, I went out and bought my first rental property wow. and, um, it was just a, an end unit townhome, you know, I think it was a three bedroom, uh, needed some work. So I, I fixed it up. There was no internet back then. So it was like newspaper and signage in the front lawn to, right. you know, say for lease. Um, I interviewed in air quotes people, you know, not knowing what I'm, what I should be asking them, but I just picked the person that I felt comfortable with. And that was my first tenant. Right. And, and that's how I got into real estate. I mean, the writing was on the wall at that point. Um, but you know, I just knew that business and real estate were the ways to create and preserve wealth. Indeed. Yeah. It's funny. You just mentioned something. I remember a story. Um, so my niece years ago, so I was in technology for a while and my niece asked me, you know, uncle Ed, what was, what was the internet like when you were, when you were my age, probably <laughs> 12 or 15 at that point. And I said, well, kiddo, uh, it was a secret military project when I was your age. <laughs> Nobody knew about it. Something called yeah. ENIAC or something like that. But, uh, uh, the, uh, yeah. So, you, you know, there was a time where we actually had printed maps and printed newspapers and we actually shook people's hands and met them and <laughs> introduced them to our properties. And yeah, that actually was a real thing. That's not, that's not legend that actually happened. Yeah. It's, it's hysterical to think that you had a one and a half inch, um, Thomas guide in your car all the right? time, you'd flipping pages to find yeah. out where you're going. If I looked hard enough, I probably still have one in my basement somewhere. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, so, you know, when you look at, um, you look at markets and you, you know, you're looking at it from a, from a, uh, a single family to four unit versus promissory notes, how does your, your calculus change in terms of what you're looking for in that kind of market? And, and, you know, what are you looking for when you're looking to do note investing? Well, I'm not sure if, if I'm going to be answering your question because I'm not sure what you're asking. And, and let me explain why I, I see that. Uh, when you invest in promissory notes, you know, it's, it's yes, it's an investment. Um, when you invest in real estate, it's an investment. Uh, I call them fruit. You know, they're both fruits, but they're two different kinds of fruit. You know, a promissory note uh, of any kind, you know, I've, I've done webinars on this. Um, you know, it, it's a one-dimensional investment. It's a paper asset. 
Okay, it's not it's not a, a hard asset. It's, it, 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 it's a paper asset. It provides a rate of return based on the terms of that note. It could be just interest only. It could be paid monthly, quarterly, annually. It could be a balloon payment. I mean, there's so many variations of it. Sure. And promissory notes could be anything from, you know, a car loan, a bike loan, uh, a mortgage loan, a personal loan. Uh, you know, th those are all various forms of promissory notes. And there could be performing, not performing, secured, unsecured. I mean, there's all kinds of flavors of promissory notes. But what they do is they provide a a a, a regular rate of return. Again, it could be one-time balloon. It could be monthly, whatever. That's great for a lot of investors, especially if you're investing in a self-directed retirement account. It's beautiful yeah. for that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when you when you it's kind of a little bit difficult to compare that to real estate, because when you have when you look, look at real estate, yes, you have cash flow could be monthly or quarterly, depending on, you know, what the deal is, you know, a syndicated deal or, you know, a, a rental property. Sure. Um, but you also have other other dimensions to investment real estate. You've got the tax benefits through the depreciation. You have the amortization of a loan, which slowly then fast builds equity. You have the appreciation that comes over time, which also builds your you know your wealth, your net worth. Um, and then you've got the leverageability of it because you can essentially leverage your investment capital five to one yep. uh, on the real estate side. So. You've got all these things involved with investment real estate, which is what makes it incredible and beautiful. Um, so, you know, you compare that to something else like promissory notes. Yeah, they're both investments. The one oh, thing they do have is yeah. yeah. Or uh, they have uh, they got cash potatoes, still fruits, but uh, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, as far as the asset, the underlying asset, um, how big a role does that play? And you mentioned cars and, you know, real estate and other types of loans, personal loans, um, the promissory notes. I'm, I'm just curious about this. And then we're going to, we're going to head back to the real estate stuff, but yeah, yeah. how much do you actually care about the underlying asset? Are you asking as if I was investing in a promissory note? Yes, I am. It, it really, well, it's a good question because there's really two ways to look at it. If, if the note is, is a real estate based note, meaning it's like a hard money loan, a short-term loan or a long-term mortgage loan, then yeah, the assets plays heavily into it because that's how you underwrite a real estate based loan or, yeah. or a promissory note. Um, it, it's all about the asset. However, if the promissory note is a business loan, it's going to a, a, a business venture performing business that's got assets or other business ventures going on. And, you know, it's, it's a viable business. There's revenue and cash flow. Well, then it's different. It does in that situation, it probably won't be secured. It'll be unsecured. And that's fine because that, that is the expectation. Um, secondly, you, you, now you're, you're underwriting the business itself or the fund. And so you're looking at the stability and, and, and maybe the diversification of the assets or businesses, um, you know, within that, that, that entity or that, that venture. Gotcha. Uh, so at that point you're, you're, you're underwriting it a little differently. It's, it's not a secure loan. It's, it's based on the performance and history of that, that business venture uh, or the future potential of it. I mean, if it's got strong alpha, like very high upside potential um, even though there's risk uh, the, the upside, you know, five to one, 10 to one or more could far outweigh, you know, the, the potential downside of it. And so you're looking at it a little bit differently there. Yes. Someone who's investing in a real estate note uh, is going to be thinking differently than someone who's investing in 
a, a business or a business venture through a promissory note. You know, it, 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 there's they're they're slightly different animals. Sure. So the the short answer is it depends. The long answer is you know you dig into the weeds of it. Right. Right. So so um you know in terms of uh you know, we're going to switch back to real estate now. So in terms yeah. of the, you know, the, the, the markets that you're, you're currently looking at and, and, you know, how you think things are going to play out, it sounds like we're in for a bumpy road, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, one of the things you said earlier on was that it's always a good time to invest in real estate, right? Um, it just comes down to, you know, the terms and the, and the price point and other factors. So I'm curious, you know, going into 2023, how is the, the fact that the, that the you know the fed is doing what is making is taking its actions pricing is is obviously changing flexibility is changing inventory is obviously going up you know how is that affecting your strategy going into next year uh it doesn't it doesn't change my strategy because my strategy is always to uh buy and hold income producing rental property that are in good markets you know, we talked about the fundamentals right, 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 uh, right. and in good neighborhoods within those markets, which is critically important to me. I put far more weight on the areas and neighborhoods within a market than the market itself. Right. You know, I start with the market because I have this, you know, it's one of my 10 rules, you know, it's a top, take a top down approach. You start with the big picture macro and you work your way down like a funnel until you ultimately get to the property that you're, you know, underwriting. So you don't start with the property and work backwards. You start with the market and work inward, you know, down. Right. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I I look at the market, and then I consider the areas and the neighborhoods, and make sure that I'm in the areas that have the right, you know, uh, demographics and 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 growth potential. They're desirable areas, you know, strong rents relative to price and all that stuff. Um, that's that's kind of the, the approach I take. Uh, so so again, like I said before, it's not when. Uh, it's where, and right. so, so uh, I I might have been all in, and I was. I mean, a lot of our clients were all in in places like Dallas, you know, and San Antonio years ago, but those markets got, you know, those markets changed. They're it's hard to get inventory. The numbers don't make as much sense now as they used to. Sure. So you you know you change your 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 approach now. You, now we're looking at you know the greater suburbs of Baltimore places in Pennsylvania. I mean, these are all markets we're in, uh, you know, some places in um, uh, markets in Alabama, Mississippi, still were in many markets in Florida, Florida is still, you know, doing very, very well. So, you know, our focus is there, my focus is there, uh, even Kansas City, Missouri, we're, we're focused there, because there's inventory, the numbers make sense, there's still opportunity. And even if the market is correcting a little bit, let's just say, I, I mean, I'm in escrow right now, uh, for property in, in Kansas City, Missouri. I already have a portfolio there, but I'm adding to it because I came across some deals that actually make sense. You know, everything everything panned, panned out. Right. Um, but I'm 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 focused there because I'm still very bullish about that market. Sure. Um, you know, both short term, but especially long term. You know, I, I've I've already gotten familiar with it because I was investing there, but now I'm just adding to my position. Yeah. So um so yeah, I mean, you, you you just take everything into consideration. But again, like I said, it's 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 so it's about where you're investing. Yeah. So so that's an interesting point. It's not it's not that the strategy changes. It's that the location where you're investing changes, right? Yeah. My strategy is buy and hold. The, my, right. the strategy right. doesn't change. My criteria is more or less the same. You know, my my uh, my checklist as as far as how I underwrite everything from the market down is pretty much the same. 
it's it's the ver- the biggest variable is the location. That's right. what that's what changes. Right. That makes total sense. Um, so, so one of the things that I have this theory and, and, uh, I'm, I'm in, I'm on a mission to prove it correct, which is that, uh, correct or incorrect or incorrect for that matter, but I'm, you know, okay. I'm, I'm right. Um, it, that leaders are readers. And so, you know, I'm curious, you know, obviously someone is accomplished as you, uh, you know, you take in information from a whole host of, of, uh, of places and, and sources. So I'm curious, you know, how do you consume information that you use in your life? Uh, whether it be books or audible books or, or, you know, recorded books or podcasts or YouTube videos or something else, uh, conferences, whatever. I mean, how do you consume information? How do you sharpen the saw? The answer is D all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So no, it's, it's true. Um, you know, you're saying, you know, leaders or readers, that's true. You know, I like to say the more you learn, the more you earn, the right. more you, you know, the more you know, the more you grow. Right. Um, that is a common denominator across all all successful people, people who are are high achievers and are actually, you know, making crap happen yeah. is they they are constantly educating themselves, whether it be daily or weekly or even monthly, but but on an ongoing basis. Uh, and and they have the hunger and the thirst to learn more and acquire more information because they they can take it and apply it to their lives. Right, and that's um, a key word, right? Apply. Don't just read it and drink through the fire hose and file it away. Actually, make something happen with what you learned. Sure. I mean, you you could be one of the most educated people in terms of of finance and investing, but if you don't actually do something with it, you're going to be the most educated broke person. Right. You're going to be the smartest guy at the. Uh, at the uh, unemployment line, right? In the super, uh, yeah, the super uh, line, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, but you know, as far as consumption goes, like anything goes. It's yeah. it, it, for me. For me, I, I, I it's anything. I, I love to read. It's podcasts. It's YouTube videos. It's um, courses. It's you know, live events, uh, masterminds. I'm you know, I, I'm I, I've been in masterminds for many many years. In fact, we have our own high end mastermind as well. Um, but I'll I'll learn and consume however I can. Yeah. So, what are you paying uh, attention to these days? Who or what? Uh, who or what? Um, so, uh, like what's on your nightstand or on your uh, your iPhone right now that you're uh, you're going to listen to on the ride home? Yeah, well, the new the new book I just started uh, started is um, it's actually Michael Hyatt who's got a lot of New York Times bestsellers. You know, he's he's a lot about leadership, business development, uh, entrepreneurship. Um, he's got a book. It's not that new. It's it's a few years old, but it's called um, uh, Time to um, what's it called? Uh, actually, I think I wrote it down somewhere here. Um, free to focus. I was going to say time to focus. It's about time management. And that's always a big hot button with, with like high achievers and, and, and entrepreneurs and successful people or investors is, you know, how, how do I increase my productivity? How do I get the most out of my time and not waste time? So for me, I've for for the longest time, as far as I can remember, I've always been fascinated about time and time management because it's it's the one thing we all have, it's the one thing we can all spend, but it's also the one thing you can never get back. Right. You know, and so time time is important. Time is precious, and so so I, I try and read you know every once in a while like books about time management. Um, but yeah, Michael Hyatt's book, uh, Free to Focus. I I just finished like the first chapter, or whatever. It's very very good, by the way. Yeah. Um, What's that? I, no, I'm going to pick it up. I I uh, I make a habit out of out of speaking when I'm speaking with folks like you. I if I haven't read the book that that you mentioned, I'm it's 
next on the list or at least makes the list. Yeah, it, it, it's well worth picking up. I mean, I've already thumbed through it, so I got it. I got a pretty good sense. But I've also we had Michael Hyatt um, as you know as one of our invited speakers at um, our our mastermind at Power Room, and um, and so I got you know when before he went on stage, I was with him in you know in the, what we call the green room for about an hour and a half. So I got to know learn learn a lot about him and get to know him quite well. Um, very interesting guy, you know, very knowledgeable guy, but, um, but yeah, I, it's well worth picking up, you know, a book like that or, or something similar, but free to focus is a good one. Okay. All right. That's on the list. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, so when you're not talking about real estate and you're not reading Michael Hyatt books, uh, how do you like to spend your time? What do you do to unwind and what are your hobbies? Uh-huh. That's a funny question because um, sometimes I'm I'm not even sure I have any hobbies because I, I I actually enjoy uh, work and business and entrepreneurship and investing so much that to me it is my hobby. Yep. You know I don't feel work is work ever. You know I I, I just do the things I do uh, that that ultimately help other people whether it's investing in real estate or investing in promissory notes um, because I I I enjoy it. I mean it's part of me and I'm involved in it. And yeah. so for me, it's, it's always a constant ongoing challenge. Um, but outside of that, um, I guess the two things I'll throw out at you is uh, um, one is I, I enjoy playing poker. I, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty good poker player. I play in a lot of tournaments, uh, go to the world series of poker. Um, for me, it's kind of like three dimensional chess, you know, it's just further works and exercises my brain. You know, I, I want to be challenged. I want to solve problems. And so poker for me is just a great way to do that. It's like playing chess, but at another, another level, um, that would be my fun time and my hobby time. So of course I love spending time with my daughter. Um, outside of that, this, this sounds like the fun thing to do, but it's really a business and an investment, but I'm co-producing multiple, uh, Broadway musicals. So, uh, so, so, so so yes, those are businesses. Yes. Those are investments, but they're also so much, there's a lot of labor of love in there. I, you know, I I've always loved theater and, and musicals. My daughter's heavily involved in, in performing arts and whatnot. So, but we just uh, just uh, earlier this month, actually, it was December fourth. We had opening night for one of our productions, which is uh, it's called uh, "A Beautiful Noise." It's the Neil Diamond musical. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. So I, I'm I'm actually the largest single um, investor in that production. Wow. So we had an amazing opening night. Neil Diamond was there. He actually sang after curtain call. You know, we had the cast on stage and tw- all twelve hundred people in the uh in the theater we're singing uh a lot sweet caroline along with them it was just it was just a magical moment you know i i can only imagine wow it's I, i've got goosebumps just thinking about it that yeah, must it's great amazing. yeah wow it's, it's well great. worth seeing it's a lot of fun it's a great it, if, if if you like theater in any way shape or form or or neil diamond you'll love this because it's about his life this is kind of like his official unofficial autobiography in the form of a musical like he's he's fully endorsed it because this is how his 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 life and legend will live on my uh my i don't know if this is good or bad but one of my dogs is named caroline after sweet caroline oh Uh, no kidding yeah for sure yeah and (laughs) uh, so that's yeah it's we've uh we really enjoy the, the the you know living so close to new york um it's one of the things that we certainly treasure ourselves um i was just there we weren't on broadway but we uh we we saw the Rockettes this past weekend. So oh cool. Was, yeah. That's been there a long time. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. 
and uh, then our, then we made our our uh, our annual trek to uh, Ellen Stardust Diner to to uh, watch all the kids who are trying to make it on Broadway uh, sing their way through uh, serving dinner and cooking and all that. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> nice, yeah. very cool. That's yeah, very, very cool. cool. So, well, uh, Marco, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure uh, finally meeting you. Like I said, I've been I've been uh, chasing you on uh, Facebook and and other places uh, for for quite a while now, or social media for quite a while. So, uh, thank you very much. Um, I certainly enjoyed this, and I'm I feel like I'm a little bit smarter uh, just having just having spoken to you. So, um, thank you. Well, thank you, Ed. I appreciate the invite, um, and happy new year to you and your entire audience. Thank you. Continue good fortune. Marco Santarelli, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. This has been the Real Estate Underground Podcast, a Clark Street Capital presentation. Thanks for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about Clark Street Capital and our upcoming projects, please join our investor club at clarkst.com slash join. Until next time, happy investing.